Welcome to the Blazer Focus Podcast. I'm Aaron Fencher, speedwriter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. And I'm really excited to be joined today by one of the premier Blazer writers in the history of the franchise, Carrie Eggers, who was covering the team back when I was just a wee little sports clerk at the Oregonian, <laughs> probably annoying him, telling him how the Bulls were going to take down the Blazers in the 1992 finals. Uh, but now here we are, come you know, full circle decades later, and I'm uh, excited to have him on to talk about his new biography on Jerome, No Mercy, Cursey. It just came out in October. It's called Overcoming the Odds. It's available everywhere on Amazon and anywhere else you'd want to find this book. Carrie, welcome to the Blazer Focus podcast. How are you, my man? I'm good. Thank you for having me on, Aaron. And we should tell your listeners that we go back even farther than your days as an intern uh, uh, waving pom-poms for the Bulls and the <laughs> Bears. And we go back to when you were at Grant High School, and I was covering some uh, high school stuff, and I believe I did a story on you at the Shrine Game. Is that correct? That's right. And yeah. then at Portland State for a while, I think. And so, uh, yeah, our our relationship goes runs deep, and I appreciate you having me on. Man, way back to when I was a teen and had a whole lot of hair. You <laughs> <laughs> have more. We both had more in those days. Yeah, Aaron. Uh, you know, it's it, I appreciate you having me on. It's been fun sure. to do this book. I knew Jerome. You know, we had a cordial personal relationship, but not a social relationship. But like a lot of people, I liked him. Like most people, I liked him. And and uh, the opportunity to write this book came up with a group from Virginia uh, reached out to me. Let's see. It was, uh, well, it was right after COVID hit. It was about uh, in the spring of 2020. And they asked me if I'd be interested in completing a book that had been started by Hope Curry uh, many years ago. He was a sports information director at Longwood College where Jerome mm. went to school. And, you know, I looked over the stuff and I thought about it and and I got back to him. I said, I'd be interested in doing my own book if if you guys have a publisher and an advance money. And the next day, Ron Brown, the, he's the guy kind of in charge of the group, said, yeah, we got that. So uh, lo and behold, now we, we came up with a book. And uh, I, I hope it's uh, something that the fans in Portland will enjoy about one of the most popular Blazers of all time. Yeah, this was a guy, I mean, he was never an all-star. He maybe overshot a little bit by the directors and porters, et cetera, et cetera. But Back in his prime, man, he was one of the premier just energy guys, like that guy who brought it on offense, on defense, one of the best open court running forwards. I mean, clearly you had Worthy out there and Chambers and Nance, but this guy was right up there in terms of getting out on the break and then throwing down those powerful dunks, which is sort of where the nickname No Mercy came from, right? Because he he had no mercy if you were in front of him on the face fast break, but he was also such a great dude, like a great teammate and a great guy. I had the pleasure of getting to know him a little bit working with him, I think for two seasons on talking ball, when I did yeah, talking ball in yeah. the summer, he was on with me and Orlando Williams and, and Dan Sheldon. And just like, he was almost, he was so disarming. It was almost like, were you really no mercy cursey? Cause he was just so nice and so kind and so cool uh, to hang out with and do that show with. Like, and you know me, I love to argue and debate with anybody. I couldn't even find it in my heart to yeah. argue and debate with him because he would just be so nice <laughs> with his altering view. But talk a little bit about him just as, as a person. Well, one thing you mentioned was he was never an all-star. And it's interesting. I looked that up and and you're right. <clears throat> uh, and there was a great era that early or late 80s, early 90s of small forwards in the league. And so I looked up who his competition was early in his career. It was Alex English and uh, Mark Aguirre. And then mm-hmm. during the during his heyday, it was always Chris Mullen and James Worthy, as you mentioned. So that factored into him. He was the one guy of that top six that the Blazers had in those three years 
that never made an all-star game, he was certainly worthy of it. The other thing that right. hurt him was Clyde Drexler was making it every year. Terry Porter right. made it a few times. Uh, Kevin Duckworth made it twice. So you can't get more than two. You know, you're, a couple of years they got three, but Jerome was just sort of the odd man out. But to a man, and Rick Adelman echoed this too, that he they all agreed that his contributions were as much as anybody's on that team. Well, yeah, he had, I mean, his biggest year, 19 points, eight rebounds. Yeah. That was on the 87-88 team. I mean, that's definitely all-star caliber. Um, and then also 17 points, eight rebounds. Those are two years right there where you would say, man, that guy, how, how was he not an all-star? But like you said, there were a lot of great small forwards around back then. So you spoke to about 80 people for this book, right? Like how, how deep did you go? How many teammates you talked to, coaches? I mean, where, where did this book take you? Well, I, I, yeah, I talked to about 25 teammates, I believe, Clyde Drexler, Buck Williams. Uh, uh, of course, Terry Porter did the, the, the foreword, and he's going to mm-hmm. do a uh, uh, book signing with me next week on, on the 30th uh, of uh, November at Moda Center during the Blazers game against, ironically, not ironically, actually, they made this business <laughs> intentionally against the Detroit Pistons, who was the team that they lost to in the 90 finals. But uh, so, yeah, those guys. And then also... Uh, a lot of uh, his coaches, uh, who, including Rick Adelman, uh, who just recently was inducted into the Hall of Fame, and uh, and John Wetzel, who was the assistant then, and then other coaches that he played for, George Carl, and and uh, uh, you know, so and, and then uh, some of the players that play that played against him. I, I called uh, uh, Charles Barkley. He got back to me within two hours and said, "I'd love to talk about Jerome. He was one of my favorite guys." I guess they hung out together, Aaron, uh, quite a bit in Portland when. Uh, uh, Charles would come out for his Nike stuff once or twice mm-hmm. a year. He also came out for a lot of golf tournaments. And he said, anytime that we went out there that, uh, you know, we hung out together. Uh, and then John Stockton, uh, he got right back to me too, which surprised me. He's a tough get, but he liked Jerome too. They actually kind of got discovered at the same place. It was called the Portsmouth Invitational. You probably heard of it, Aaron. It's a kind of a second round type uh, pre-draft thing. Got Not the first round type players. Jerome wasn't even invited to that thing. He, he got in as a last minute entrant and made the all-star team. And, and that was sort of the beginning, but John said, we, we had a lot of similarities and we were friends. And, and, and so it was fun. to. T- That's one of the good things about writing a book like this is you get to talk to interesting people about an interesting subject. What is, what's the universal theme amongst people about him? Not, not necessarily as a basketball player, but as a person, why was he so well loved? Yeah. What you said is right. You know, People ask me, what, what surprised you? What did you learn that surprised you about the book? There wasn't much because uh, it, was a, it was a central theme of a guy treating people well. And I, and I, I think it, it all came from his, uh, his uh, upbringing in a little town called Clarksville, Virginia, uh, a rural town. Uh, he was in a lower, lower income family. Uh, his grandparents raised him. His mother uh, was 18 when she had him and was not ready to be a mom. And turn him over to his parent, her parents, who incidentally already had seven kids of their own, Aaron. Wow. <laughs> so, so Jerome became the eighth child and they did a beautiful job with him. I, I, I was lucky enough. The first person I interviewed for this book was Grandma Kersey. Her, her name was Mary and they called her May. And about six months later, she died. So I was so happy that I was able oh, wow. to get her input. And uh, But in answer to your question, that that is a central theme. Uh, a guy that had a lot of charisma, but I don't think he had uh, the condescending attitude a lot of the pro athletes do. He, he uh, as you in, in mentioned, he, he listens to you, and he's he's a kind of guy that actually wanted to know what your opinion was on stuff. And and I, I enjoyed my interactions with him a lot. 
So he learned how to rebound fighting for dinner as the youngest kid out of eight, right? Like he, he probably did. Yeah. The yeah, boys at dinner time. You know, work, the other the other central theme, Aaron, is is work ethic, and he was right. as hard a worker as, as I ever saw in the league. And and uh, you know, he did that when he was a kid. He did it in high school. He did it as, in college at Longwood, where he became the greatest player they've ever had. And then at, with the Blazers, I mean, he. He spent a lot of time when we got into this in the book with Rick Adelman and Jeff Petrie in the first couple, three years of his career, uh, off nights uh, in, the, in the summers, uh, weekends when they're not, you know, when the team wasn't playing, they would be in the gym working on shooting, ball handling and that sort of thing. And that's the reason that he became as good a player as he was. So Longwood's a Division two school. So it's safe to say that, you know, in the age of recruiting now, he would have been like a one-star recruit or so to speak. He goes to a small college like that. What did he do there that, that caught the eye of the NBA scouts? He was a late bloomer physically, Aaron, a 6'3 six, six, as a senior, but about 5'11 as a sophomore in high school. Oh, wow. But by the time he got to Longwood, he was 6'5. And by the time his end of his, his uh, freshman year, he was 6'7. So that was the biggest thing to start out with. Physically, he became an imposing guy. And, and then secondly, he just he, he, was, he was a guy that he was a, le- a quiet leader but a very charismatic player who could do virtually everything, but shoot well, <laughs> That's what, <laughs> yeah. that, that was his, his sort of his uh, you know, the, the weakness that he had in his game. And he, and he really worked on that during his pro career and became an adequate shooter, not a great one, but, uh, but as you said, boy, could he run the court and he was a fantastic rebound. He led the nation D two in in rebounding his, I think both his junior and senior years. And that, you know, he wasn't a huge guy. He was six, seven, but, uh, he he could really get after the ball. What do you think uh, allowed him to fit in so well with those Blazers teams, those Drexler teams? Was part of it his humility and that he didn't have to be the central figure of anything? He could just go out there and do his job humbly? I like that you use the word fit in because that's exactly what he did. As you mentioned, before they really got the great group together, he averaged 19 points a game. But by the time uh, 89, 90 rolled around. They had Buck Williams. They brought in a rookie, a young man named Cliff Robinson, who you well remember. Uh, yeah. And so they had some really, and Clyde Drexler was in his prime. He was doing most of the scoring and Terry Porter uh, was, was in his prime. So there were no plays run for him. He and Buck used to joke with me. They'd say, yeah, we go stand in the corner. <laughs> they say, go stand in the corner and come in and get our rebound after we shoot. And and that's about you know while they were kidding a little bit you know that, that that's that's where they got their shots the putbacks and also both of them ran the break beautifully Jerome was as good a a, a runner of the court as I ever saw oh, yeah. and of course a finisher as a dunker he was really good yeah the year he averaged nineteen he he had, he had excuse me averaged fifteen point five shots per game mm. the year they went to the finals he was down to thirteen the first yeah. time then the second year they went to the finals he was down to eleven so he clearly had to accept a lesser role offensively, which made the team yeah. better. Um, but he never, he never grumbled about that. Right. He did. Well, they did grumble. <laughs> they grumbled. <laughs> did he grumble? He grumbled. He did, he did <laughs> but not, not, you know, he understood that right. back to your point, fitting in, he wanted the best for the team. He really did. And he, he knew that there were certain things they needed from, they needed hustle, they needed energy, they needed defense and they needed rebounding. And he gave all four of those things. You are listening to the Blazer Focus Podcast. We'll be right back after a short break. Right 
what did Clyde have to say about him? Clyde being the superstar of that team. Obviously, when you're a superstar, you need good teammates to help you, you know, achieve what you want to achieve. They never quite win the title. But they did get there twice. What did he have to say about Jerome as a player and as a person? Well, that's an interesting question because Clyde and Kiki Vandeweghe, who was uh, Jerome's predecessor at small forward on that team, were great friends. And so here in comes Jerome Kersey, and he's pushing Kiki for the starting job. And, and everybody wondered, how was that going to work, play its way out? Well, Jerome and, and Clyde got along pretty well, too. They really did. And Clyde said great things about Jerome mm-hmm. uh, in, in the book and, and has always done that. And But uh, the interesting thing about it was that by the second year, Jerome was, was you know, there was people saying, hey, he should be starting instead of Kiki Vandeweghe, who, as you know, was one of the great scorers in the league at yeah. that time. Not as well-rounded as Jerome, but he, he could really fill up the hoop. And so by his third year, that's when Jerome came in and took over the, the small forward position. And then he, he held it for, I think, five, five and a half years. And then he went through the same thing with Cliff Robinson. Eventually, Cliff mm-hmm. beat him out. You've written a lot of books about the Blazers, obviously, uh, the eras that you covered. Where does this sort of rank in terms of just the joy of reporting it and writing it? It sounds like, you know, you had a good relationship with him. Yeah, uh, uh, well, first of all, I think that era is the second best team, group of team that that the Blazers have ever had behind that 70, 76 through 78 teams that won the title and were going to win the second one uh, until uh, Bolton got hurt. So uh, in terms of talent, uh, they, they were, you know, they were the next ones. And then you'd probably put in a couple of those Blazer teams or possibly maybe uh, Damian's team a couple of years ago as as the third group. But uh, and then in terms of enjoying covering them, they were great. They really were. Every one of those guys was a solid guy uh, personally uh, with with deportment issues and also just to get along with. I got along with – I didn't have any major problems with anybody. Probably the guy who gave me the most grief about my stories of any of those guys was Jerome because yeah. he actually would read the stories. <laughs> you know, do you ever find that to be a problem? These guys get it secondhand. He'd actually, oh yeah, I've had that happen before. Yeah, so yeah. you know, but but we had, we had a couple of talks, but he he never held it against me, and we always got along pretty well. So you recently went back to Virginia for a book signing, met um, um, many of his family members who I, I think you told me wouldn't even return your calls for the book, but then the book comes out and they're there to talk to you after the fact. What was that experience like going back to his hometown? Yeah, so I was. Uh, they flew me back there for three events, uh, two in. Uh, at Longwood College, where he played, and that's in Farmville, Virginia, and then uh, his hometown was Clarksville, which is about an hour away, and so, uh, as you said, I, I, in researching the book, I wanted to talk to as many of his family members as I possibly could. Uh, The only ones I was able to reach were his grandma, uh, Mary May, Uh, his grandfather's no longer with us, and then uh, also uh, his cousin, uh, who they called Junie Jr., uh, and uh, they were like brothers. So I, I got a lot of good stuff from him, but nothing from his aunts and his uncles and some cousins that I would love to have gotten a hold of. So I get to Clarksville on Sunday. Uh, that was the last event we had, and it was kind of a town hall type meeting. And the, the guy that was uh, doing the uh, introductions, he, he said, I'd like everybody to, that's here. And there was probably about 30 people there. Stand up and get, say a few words, identify yourself and, 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 and t- tell me wh- what you know about Jerome. And a half a dozen of them were, as you say, Jerome's, it was Uncle Buck, and I think his Aunt Brenda, and and several cousins, and another aunt, and and then also his birth mother, Dolores, who I, I had really tried to get a hold of, and she had not returned my calls. So 
uh, I was I was really uh, surprised to see them, and it was great to have them there. And then at the end of the night, uh, as the end of the talk, they all came up and we visited, and they wanted to have pictures taken. They bought the book, and so that was really a validation that I that they felt that I, I was able to do a decent job, and I was glad to hear that. It, it made me feel good. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the fact that they. They read the book and were like, oh, man, this is a great piece of work on their on their cousin, aunt, whatever. And then they came out like that. That's that had to make you feel really good. Yeah. Yeah. And and in that they hadn't, you know, I think I, I asked one of them, I asked Brenda, uh, you know, I said, well, how come you guys never returned my calls? And they said, well, you know, we were busy caring for, you know, uh, the, the grandma um, May. And, and I think they felt uh, just a little nervous about. Uh, getting involved in anything that they were protective might be the best word and uh, of Jerome's legacy. And, and perhaps after getting a look at the book, they felt that, that was accomplished. Now, how's his uh, family doing? Um, his immediate family, uh, obviously is a very sudden, unexpected death uh, almost seven years ago. Right. And um, how, how have they been? Yeah. Six, six plus years. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, good. Uh, uh, his uh, widow, Terry, uh, Kersey, now she's Terry Kersey Valentine was fantastic, Aaron, uh, in in helping me, leading me through uh, his life over the last ten years or so. She was with him for gosh, almost almost ten years, but they were only married about eighteen months, which is really sad that uh, they had that little time together. Also, great was Kiara, his uh, his daughter, and I've told this story a lot. Uh, the only professional athlete I ever invited over to my house for dinner was Jerome. And this was many years ago when uh, his, his then uh, fiance, Angela, who is Kiara's uh, mother, like they came with her little baby. She was like one year old. And now wow. she's 20. Now she's 26. Oh, wow. <laughs> That'll date you a little bit. <laughs> but you can imagine how excited my little boys were that, uh, that uh, you know, Jerome Kersey was coming over to dinner and he was great. And they still regarded as a highlight of their young life. And uh, but, uh, you know, yeah, that he. Uh, he, he, his family, uh, the immediate family here, those two were, were terrific in helping with the book. We talked earlier about uh, Jerome Kersey, the finisher, but I guess there was, a, there was something with his hands that maybe caused him to cradle the ball more and not palm it like a Dr. J. Uh, what was going on there? Well, despite the fact that he was six seven, Aaron, he had small hands and his really much to the delight of his teammates who kidded <laughs> him about that, but he could not palm the ball. Really? Wow. Yeah, or, or had difficulty doing it. And that's yeah. probably. I've not asked him about that. You know, one of the problems in, in writing a book about somebody who's gone is that you can't ask him these questions. Right. I was very lucky that Hope Curry, who uh, was the guy that started the book before, had extensive interviewing with Jerome in his life up to 1998. So that was, he was, what, 36 years old and still in the league at the time. But I had a lot of stuff. Plus, I, I had a lot of interview stuff that I had done. But uh, but I wasn't able to ask him a lot of follow-up type stuff that I normally would ask if I'm writing a biography on a guy. Yeah. But back to the dunking, I, I don't know. I think it was probably him. He just realized that that's the best way to do it. And you're right. He kind of did cradle it and boom, he was, a, you know, he was a runner up in the dunk contest to your, yeah. uh, fa- I think he's your favorite uh, uh, NBA player of all time, Mr. <laughs> Jordan, right? Of and course. by the way, there was some. Well, Magic, actually. Magic, actually, then Jordan. Really? Yeah. More than uh, Michael? Uh, yeah. Okay. But anyway, there was some conjecture. Now, that year, if you remember, it was in Chicago. And yep. he and Michael d- d- had the same dunk twice. And you're not supposed to do the same dunk twice. There are those who wanted Jerome to win that say, 
that, that that say that he should have been that Jordan should have been disqualified because of that. So yeah, 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 whatever. Anyway, <laughs> we're not revisiting that controversy. Um, okay, Jerome remained in Portland, and a lot of the Blazers yeah. actually did. Why do you think he stayed here? Yeah, that, you know that era, a lot of them did, uh, uh, Aaron. But he, in particular, from the time in 1984 until his death in 2015, this was his permanent home. He loved the people. He loved the area. Uh, I think he liked the outdoors enough. He became a fisherman and and uh, you know and that kind of stuff and and enjoyed. Uh, I think he 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 liked the idea that Portland was not the bigger type city. I don't think he'd have been as as con- comfortable in Chicago or New York or Los Angeles as he was in Portland. And, and it was a good fit for both because the people liked the fact that he was, he was relatable and he was uh, the type of guy that would, would communicate with the, the people on the street. You know, Clyde Drexler was really good at that too. I was around him. Both those guys are great with the public. Okay. Uh, now you mentioned before your book signing, it's going to be before and at halftime of the Detroit game on Tuesday. How can people uh, find you and get their book signed? We'll be right out on the concourse. I think it's, it's right across from the uh, Ten Barrel uh, uh, restaurant there. I know that. And we'll be there before the game. Where the flame is? Uh, yes. Yeah, Very good. Okay. Yeah, that's right out there in that entrance. And then, uh, as, as I said, Terry Porter will be with me. And by the way, all net proceeds for our book will go to the Jerome Kersey Scholarship Fund that was okay. established for him at, at Longwood University. Now it's called. And uh, we're really excited about that. And I know Terry Porter is excited about that, too. And then we've also got a book signing on uh, Monday, the December 6th at Huber's Restaurant. Huber's okay. is a special place. It's where Jerome met his fiance, Angela. He never did get married mm. to her, but he did have a baby with her. And then Terry, both of those both of those meetings took place at Huber's. Wow. And then the, and the other one that's a public uh, one we've got is on, on uh, December 15th at Mountain Park Racket Club in Lake Oswego. And it's open to the public. And we'll I'll do a little talk and you'll be able to uh, get the book if you want. All, all these places you'll be able to get the book uh, for, uh, at $25. Now, at the Blazers uh, game, do people have to have a ticket to the game to get in and then yes. find you? Okay, so yes. they can't just chill. Okay, yeah. Okay, cool. All right, before I let you go, um, you covered this team for a long time. You're not covering them now. You still follow them pretty closely? Oh, I do. I watch uh, almost every game. Yep. Okay. And what are you thinking about them so far, the new coach and new direction? Dane's playing some D. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I, 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 wasn't surpri- I I wasn't surprised they had some stutters at the start of the season. You're going to have that with a new coach. I was very surprised that Damian had such an extended period where he wasn't hitting shots. Correct me yeah. if I'm wrong. I don't think he's had that long of a of a you know of a bad streak like that right over the first what nine games i think he shot 24 percent from three or something Uh, ridiculous like that yeah it was ridiculous and uh he 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 really looked like he'd lost confidence in his shot maybe for the first time in his pro career now it looks to me like he's regained it he's shooting pretty well yeah oh yeah he's back to normal last eight games and yeah. the West Western uh, Conference Player of the Week, you know, so right. I, 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 and and they're playing better, and uh, you know they they got some good scheduling last night with Denver with the play, bringing their JV team to Portland, but uh, <laughs> yeah. you know uh, they're they're better than they're better than all but a handful of teams. Let's put it that way. They're going to be in the playoffs, and we'll see what they can do beyond that. But yeah. Now let me ask you this: as someone who covered the Drexler era, and then of course now we, you've covered some of the Dame era the argument over who's the greatest blazer gets thrown around and the newer age fans automatically say it's Dame. It seems like yeah. the older fans say it's, it's Clyde. Where do you 
fall in that debate? Well, I, I'm an old guy, but I, I think <laughs> I'm also a, a reasonable old guy. And I, I think Damien's been fantastic. He's moved into number two for sure. But Clyde's number one. He, you know, he was on the dream team. He was he made the all star uh, game, I think, five times. Uh, has Damien's made it four or five? He's, I think Dave's at six now. I think they're both at six. But okay. go ahead. They're close to that. Uh, Clyde still the greatest scorer. Damien's <clears throat> Clyde leads in it, you know, statistically in all those categories. Plus, he, he was the best player on two teams that made the NBA Finals. Um, uh, you know, it's still Clyde. I'm not saying Damien can't get there. In fact, if he keeps playing, he will get there. But uh, he's not there yet. And Clyde was eight-time All-Star with Portland. He's at 10 for his career. And I think Damien's at at six right now my thing is and i know i'm getting myself in trouble for even saying this is that uh the statistical thing doesn't really impress me because of the three so you can argue well dame shoots better ah. he shoots better at the three but he also shoots way more threes which Good of course point. inflates your points per game yeah and also now the other side you could say well Clyde played with a better team. Therefore, he didn't score necessarily as much as he could have. But then you could say for Dame, if Dame played for a better team, he probably wouldn't score as much. So that all can be kind of like sort of a cherry picked and, and, and fluffed around how you want to, whichever side you want to take. But for me, the defensive angle, Clyde was a pretty, real, a really he good was. defender. He was could an defend underrated four defender. positions. Yeah, yeah, he could defend four positions. And the athleticism and the size in the high, it's like for me, if I'm drafting, I'm I'm taking the six seven guy over the six two guy, especially given how freakishly athletic Clyde was. Yeah, and he was a good steals guy. You know, you're uh, right. talking about the defensive end. Uh, I I don't know if he's the leader in steals. I bet he is in the in, in the in the Blazer uh, career franchise list. Uh, the one thing I'll say about Damian though, I think he hit more unforgettable winning type, you know, shots in bigger games than Clyde did. Now Clyde hit, had some too, but Damian, think about all the ones he's had a couple to win series. And then just right. some of those shots he's hit at the buzzer to win games. I mean, I think he had more of those magical moments, individual moments, maybe than Clyde did in his career. True. Yeah. I'm just going to go one, a one B and just try and be politically yeah. correct. Not get myself in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, who really cares? They're both two of the greatest. Now I will say this though. If you, if you, Ignore Walton's injuries and just say which was singularly the best for one year or just the best talent, the best overall player, regardless of longevity of career, like the guy who won MVP and the guy who won the title, right? For a year and a half, it was Walton. But I I think you agree with me that that longevity matters in it, you know? Right. It matters in terms of picking the greatest impact of a person. But if I'm picking the best, if I'm taking Walton in his prime healthy, Drexler in his prime healthy, Damon is prime healthy, I'm taking Walton. Yeah, I agree. Yep. I'm taking the seven footer, right? <laughs> yeah. Especially in that day and age when especially in yeah, that day and age. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So although he would destroy all these seven footers running around today. Oh my he? gosh. It's 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 you know, it's not a very good era for centers, is it, Aaron, right now? They it all really want to shoot threes. Yeah. Yeah. I, they you don't, know, they I, don't, I, they I don't love you. There's about three or four of them I really like, and then the rest of them are they're you know they're not as good. So, do you have any more books planned? Uh, yeah, I have something in my mind. I'm it's going to do uh, just for my for fun a collection of uh, some of my stories and with a preface and a and a postscript of what ha- how the how the article started and how it finished. And it's not always just going to be about Muhammad Ali or Michael Jordan. It's going to be about some. Uh, lesser known people that I enjoyed writing about and it, it'll be more for fun for me to do. And maybe some people will enjoy it. I hope they will. 
All right. Well, hey, Carrie, I, I appreciate having you on. Known you for a long time. You've written a ton of books about the Blazers. Definitely one of the premier aficionados of this franchise, to be sure. Maybe you'll do a Dame book. Maybe you need to do the definitive Dame versus Drexler book. How about that? Well, you know what? We'll talk to my man, Damien. I got to see him the other day, the day that I was at the Moda Center, and we talked for a minute. I hadn't seen him since uh, the COVID hit, and uh, it was nice to chat with him. He's a good, he's, you know, he's a real professional, Aaron. He yes. knows, uh, he, I, I'm sure you've already learned how he's great. He knows what you need as a writer, and he gives it to you. And I like the way he, he uh, attends to the fans, too. And, and Clyde was the same way, so he's of the same ilk in that. The year they beat Houston, 2014, yeah. there was a game. I was helping cover for NBC Sports, and there was a game they lost at home to the Spurs. It might have been game three or something like that. And I remember him up there talking about it, and he was like 20, was he 23, 24? And I was thinking, oh, my God, this is like one of the most mature, yes. <laughs> uh, introspective, uh, thinking people, not just athletes, people I've ever inter- been in part of an interview process with. Like he was just a beyond his years and he's continued to be that guy the whole way. He's by far, I've covered MLB, I've covered NFL, college football, NBA. He's number one by far in terms yeah. of interview subject that I've ever dealt with. Where's he ranked for you? Yeah, he's in there too. And, and, you know, we talked a little bit about Jerome Kersey's upbringing and uh, gave a lot of credit to his grandmother and his grandfather. And I think we got to do the same thing with, with, I, I don't, I've never met either his mother or his father, but I have a feeling they did a fantastic job in raising him and instilling a, a lot of important virtues that, that he showed as a, as you say, as even a young adult. Absolutely. All right. Well, again, thanks Carrie for coming on. I appreciate it. Good luck with the Thank book. You, and I'll, I'll probably swing by the signing on uh, Tuesday against Detroit and say hello to you and Terry. And I hope you get time to read the book. You've been I know you sent it to me. I've been sick. <laughs> I was traveling. I, I definitely will read it. Like I said, I got to know Jerome a little bit yeah. working with him uh, probably for 20 shows or whatever. Just a, a great, great guy. Um, But anyway, thanks for coming on the Blazer Focus podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me.